Hello, and welcome back to Deep Dive. I'm Laura Arnold. Today, we explore a topic that is top of mind to anyone who is following events in Washington. Polarization. Congressional dysfunction. Debilitating partisanship. Its consequences for our democracy. At its heart, politics exists to resolve conflict. Because conflict is endemic to human nature. And democracy exists to structure that conflict to deal with the problems that require collective action. A healthy democracy isn't defined by the absence of conflict. It's defined by the capacity of the system to settle our differences. Healthy democracies are still partisan, but not every issue is a zero-sum, us-against-them battle of attrition. Healthy democracies bend debates toward compromise. They incentivize it, and they hold the actors in the system accountable. Twenty twenty one laid bare that our democracy is in trouble. We had an insurrection by an angry mob at the Capitol, contesting the outcome of a free and fair election. We came to the brink of defaulting on our debt. Simply keeping government open and operating is being used as a bargaining chip to embarrass political opponents. And raising the debt limit is usually a bipartisan undertaking. That's what is not happening today. And for me, at least, the hardest part is that, through it all, real problems still loom. The healthcare system that costs too much and delivers too little. An antiquated immigration system in need of reform. A tax system that is easily gamed. We want to hear from our viewers, is the U.S. tax system fair? The failure of the political system to meet these and other challenges has led to greater distrust greater apathy, and a loss of faith that we can remain a great country. To solve for this problem, we need to understand it. And then we need to think through solutions that have the potential to reform what's broken. That's the subject of today's conversation. First, we'll talk to Stanford professor Larry Diamond, one of the leading experts on democracy, about the current state of democracy and potential solutions to address structural drivers of polarization. We'll then speak with Andrew Yang, former presidential candidate and New York City mayoral candidate, about his experiences on the campaign trail, his policy ideas, and his recent efforts to break the partisan logjam. But first, Professor Diamond. Larry, welcome to Deep Dive. Thank you, Laura. It's really a pleasure to be with you. Larry, almost exactly a year ago, you wrote an op-ed in the New York Times entitled, I'm a democracy expert. I never thought we'd be so close to a breakdown. What did you mean? What I meant was the gathering evidence that key political players were defecting from democratic norms and were showing a willingness to circumvent or degrade the basic rules of democracy, including the ability of people to vote in free and fair elections without undue hindrance, and the ability to count the votes in an objective and neutral way. And when faith in the process, Laura, degrades through a fiercely partisan lens of mistrust and manipulation of the rules then the most basic foundations of democracy are at risk. Now, you've said that a democratic system of government stands on three legs. First being popular sovereignty, Mm -hmm. the second being liberty, and the third being the rule of law. Mm -hmm. It sounds like your view is that we are at a point where each of those things is threatened in different ways. Is that right? 
When Donald Trump was elected and then assumed office in January of 2017, many people were worried that he would launch a relentless assault on civil liberties and the independence of the media, and that fear would prevail in terms of freedom of speech. He had very little success in intimidating freedom of speech, except among the politicians within his own party. But I think the average person in the United States, and frankly, the average media outlet in the United States, even fiercely critical ones of Donald Trump, like MSNBC or the New York Times or something, felt rather little impact in terms of intimidation or constraint, even if there were some attempts to do so. So it wasn't freedom so much that suffered under Donald Trump. It was the gradual erosion of the integrity of the actual electoral process and the ability to determine and certify who had won an election. And that, I think, is the dimension of the three-legged triad that is most alarmingly at risk right now. So help us understand how we got here. It seems to me that not too long ago, we actually had governments that worked, at least at the high level, at the congressional level. We had massive bipartisan measures passed in Congress, Social Security reform, the Americans with Disabilities Act, welfare reform, McCain-Feingold. All of these were bipartisan measures, and they were big things. Now we can't even legislate on issues where the majority of the country agrees. So, So what changed? The polarization really begins to crystallize and reshape the functioning of Congress as early as the mid to late 1990s with the contract with America and the Newt Gingrich revolution and the rise of talk radio in the United States as sharper definers of partisan alignment and partisan discipline. In some respects, This looked initially like it could have positive elements, that the congressional parties were becoming more coherent and more programmatic. One of the things that Newt Gingrich did is unite House Republicans behind a sharper, more coherent program. But it came with rising polarization and unwillingness to compromise. And while this was happening more sharply on the right, We have seen similar trends on the other side as well, and some symmetry to this process. And then as this iterated itself through party primaries, particularly with the rise of the Tea Party around 2010, 2012, it began to impose a fiercer litmus test on the candidates running in party primaries That put the fear of God in them that if they compromised or saw some good in what the other side of the aisle was doing, they might lose their seat, not because their state or their district wouldn't reelect them, but because the small minority of primary voters in their party primary would end their political career. And that brings me to a fascinating project that you conducted in 2019 that I'd love to explore called America in One Room. As I understand it, this was an effort to bring a range of diverse voters together to have thoughtful, civil, substantive conversations about important issues and see what happened. 
Tell us what actually happened. Tell us about the effort and what, if anything, you learned from that experience. So one of the strategies that many thinkers have had for trying to break this polarization and gridlock is to go down to the grassroots and see that if we could take a random sample of the American public from diverse regions, races, ethnicities, parties, and so on, and remove them from the white-hot glare of social media broadcasting and inflammatory rhetoric and of cable television and so on, and give them access to balanced information, pro and con arguments about different issue proposals. We looked at five issues, including immigration, the environment, healthcare, and foreign policy. Maybe people, as a result of exposure to thoughtful pro and con arguments on the issues, and as a result of deliberating with one another and getting to know one another as individuals in small groups under conditions of mutual respect and careful listening, maybe they would be able to bridge some of their differences. And what we found is that on most issues, dramatically so on immigration, for example, people did converge and they emerged with much wider agreement, for example, on a more open attitude toward immigration. But on some issues, they moved not in a liberal direction, but in a more maybe a centrist or cautious one on big spending proposals. And in any case, they were thoughtful, they deliberated, and their differences narrowed. Their differences on the issues narrowed. And in particular, their partisan animosity was reduced. It's all fascinating. Now, one conclusion from that project might be that if people actually get out of their own echo chambers and interact with others, their views become less polarized, mm -hmm. right? In other words, that we all want to default toward the middle. But it sounds like you would argue that our current governmental structures don't allow that to happen. Do you think our political structures, the way that we elect people, the inner workings of representation exacerbate or even create a problem? Oh, there's no question about it. I think that the electoral system we're using now, Laura, in the United States of first past the post, where we have our legislators elected from single member districts, and of course, governors are always single member districts, and whoever gets the most votes wins, has become a death spiral. It's an electoral system that most democracies in the world have been moving away from, and none have been moving toward from other electoral systems. And while this worked fine in previous eras when we didn't have such intense levels of partisan political polarization, now, with such dramatic economic change and insecurity, with such a powerful residential sorting of populations into states and neighborhoods that are increasingly geographically more homogeneous, with the effect of social media inflaming people's opinions and animosities and fears and insecurities, the drivers of polarization have become more intense. And they have been interacting with this electoral system 
to produce, and with the phenomenon of party primaries, to produce a firestorm of political polarization. Because keep in mind this, if you are a member of Congress, first you have to be nominated by your party, usually in a party primary, where only the most intensely partisan identifiers of the party come out to vote. And if you don't pass muster in that party primary, then you're defeated and you can't even run in the general election. In 45 states, you can't get on the ballot because of the sore loser rule if you lose a primary. Then in the general election, if the voters get two choices, Republican and Democrat, and one is very intensely partisan and far to the right, and the other is maybe too liberal for their taste, they don't really have any other choice because whoever gets the most votes wins. So let's go back to, let's say we had 10,000 Americas in one room all over the country, and we created an environment of constructive dialogue where people were incentivized and motivated to steer more toward the center. And we achieved that. We achieved that because we know that meaningful discourse that is not incendiary gets people to a good place. But these people now exist within an ecosystem that is deeply flawed because, as you noted, they have to vote in a partisan primary in many states. In that partisan primary, the candidates are incentivized to become more extreme, become more polarized. And then in the general election, those same individuals who otherwise, had they been presented with more centrist choices, would have chosen those, are forced almost to choose somebody that doesn't reflect their values. Well, you've, <laughs> you've just uh, concisely uh, and effectively uh, distilled the core problem we have. And I so think, now we're massively depressed. No, we're not. Uh, and I'm going to tell you why we're not depressed. The reason I am not depressed is because people are recognizing that this is a death spiral, that the structural incentives of our electoral system, low turnout party primaries, and then first past the post general elections, where only the two polarizing options matter, is producing dysfunction and intense dislike between the two political parties. And I think they are seeing the promise of ranked choice voting, because if... I'm glad you brought that up. Well, let's talk about it. Just think about it. Let's start with the general election. Let's say you get two polarizing options, that the Republican candidate is too Trump-like or uh, right-wing for your taste, the Democrat is too progressive or uncompromising, and there's an independent or a libertarian or whatever that you would prefer as an alternative. With ranked choice voting, you don't have to waste your vote to vote for another option. You rank your ideal choice, your first choice first. And if nobody gets a majority of the vote, then you have an instant runoff. And the person with the lowest number of first preference votes is eliminated and you have a second instant runoff election to determine if anyone wins a majority. You keep having these runoff elections using the preference structure of the ballot until someone emerges with a majority. 
the need to win a real majority of sincere votes and the option of voters to rank their choices opens the opportunity, the spectrum of competition in a way that I think will reduce polarization. Right. Well, if somebody, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but in a, uh, in a general election, in a conventional, for lack of a better word, general election now, which is dominated by plurality voting mm-hmm. in the first couple of rounds, at least, somebody could win a nomination, having, by definition, actually, not winning the majority of the votes. Most people voted against you, yet you got the nomination. Yes, exactly. Let's take some of these essentially one-party states. Rhode Island, a heavily Democratic state. Mississippi, a heavily Republican state. The only option now, really, with this kind of system is a Republican who's almost certain to win and a Democrat who will run a losing race, but the 25% of the electorate who are loyal Democrats will vote for them. Imagine that with ranked choice voting in some of these essentially one-party states, an independent or a libertarian ran and people could rank their choices, that libertarian might actually, or independent or Green Party or whatever, might actually force the Democrat into an instant runoff or force the Republican into an instant runoff between, say, a very right-wing alternative and a more flexible center-right alternative and might win by winning some of the Republicans, all of the independents, and the Democrats. And an interesting test of this is going to occur in Utah this year, where the former libertarian presidential candidate, Evan McMullen, has announced his candidacy for the Senate, and he'll be running against Mike Lee, the Republican incumbent senator. If you had ranked choice voting, McMullen would have a much better chance of being able to challenge Mike Lee. But now he's going to be running in a general election as an independent or a libertarian, where if Democrats vote for the Democratic candidate, Mike Lee will be able to win, even if he only gets 40 or 45 percent of the vote. Right. The beauty of ranked choice voting is that it forces candidates to think about catering to voters for whom the candidate is not their first choice, because those votes are not thrown away. Exactly. And they have to craft broader appeals than just to their narrow constituency. And I think one of the underappreciated potential benefits of ranked choice voting is that it is going to make some of these one-party states, you could create a radically different, more exciting, more competitive, more interesting, more flexible set of dynamics. And we saw even very recently in the first congressional election that used ranked choice voting, which happened in Maine, second congressional district, a Democrat, Jared Golden, defeated the incumbent Republican by less than one percentage point, but he was actually in second place in the first round of voting. But we see that no candidate got the majority, Mm -hmm. so an instant runoff occurred, and the voters who chose the Democrat as their second choice suddenly became empowered to determine the election, if you will. And so the person who wound up winning that congressional seat was actually not the person 
who would have won had ranked choice voting not been in place. But arguably, that is a person who more accurately reflects the views of that constituency. I think the lesson we take away from Jared Golden's victory over his Republican incumbent opponent about three years ago is not that the Democrat won. It's that the more ideologically moderate candidate won. Golden is actually now one of the most centrist members of the United States Congress, whereas his Republican opponent was much further to the right on the Republican spectrum. And if it were reversed and you had a left-wing candidate running against a moderate Republican, ranked choice voting would probably lift up the moderate Republican in the same way that Susan Collins came from behind to defeat her Democratic opponent recently. But I would like to add one thing, if I may. It's promise will only be partially realized unless we address the problem of party primaries, where uh, candidates are being nominated by the most militant elements of the party and increasingly having to pass through this very demanding eye of the needle of party loyalty and inflexibility and unwillingness to compromise. Now, Larry, it'll surprise no one to learn that ranked choice voting does have its critics, its detractors. Some skeptics have contended it's simply too confusing and it's too hard to administer, it's expensive. They point to a concern that a system like this would increase doubt about the accuracy of the outcomes, so that would lead for more demands for recounts, which then leads to people having less confidence in the final results and ultimately a weaker democratic system. Uh, In fact, a poll commissioned in 2018 that I'm sure you're familiar with by Voice of the People on the University of Maryland noted that around half of the people polled of both parties found that argument that I just articulated either very convincing or somewhat convincing. What would be your response to observations like that? My response is so simple and, to my mind, so compelling. Just look at the evidence. Look at how ranked choice voting really works and look at how people feel about it once they've had the opportunity to use it. There is no evidence to indicate that people really have difficulty understanding how it works. If we can rank our preferences in beer contests and for the Academy Awards, I think we can figure it out. That's a good observation. The Oscars have been using ranked choice voting since 2009. So if you rank your favorite movies, you... I think we can figure it out for more consequential uh, purposes. And so people quickly adapt to it. Uh, it just takes a little bit of education and instruction And of course, the ballot looks different with ranked choice voting, but there's no evidence to indicate that voter turnout declines as a result of this, that it disadvantages minority candidates. One last question for you, Larry. What do you think are the prospects in your experience and research for a different structure in the United States? Oh, I think at this point... Unless we change the structural incentives that surround winning elections, if you're a candidate, and then getting reelected, surviving the renomination and reelection process, there is very little hope 
of transcending our polarization because the drivers in social media, in economic life, in residential patterns, and so on, are otherwise so powerful. So we need some powerful incentives from the political institutional side to induce people to do the right thing, the thing they want to do, which is value, compromise, and not even always moderation, but just willingness to breach the partisan divide for the national interest, it's still going to, in a presidential system, in a two-party system, it's still going to mainly elect people from the two parties, but it's the kinds of Republicans and Democrats who will be elected that will matter. And the freedom they will then have in Congress to compromise without fearing that they are committing political suicide. And when this is on the ballot and people have a chance to think about this and debate this, it's becoming appealing. It doesn't win everywhere, but I think it's gaining momentum. And we see that in the grassroots campaigns that are gathering momentum in different states that have the voter initiative to change the electoral system to one that will save our democracy and not destroy it. Well, here's to saving our democracy. Professor Diamond, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a true pleasure, and we thank you for your work on defending democracy and advancing democracy and keeping us all honest. Thank you. Well, thank you, Laura, and thank you for your support of this very essential reform for renewing and preserving our democracy. Andrew Yang ran for the Democratic presidential nomination in 2019. In 2021, he ran for mayor of New York City. That campaign gave us a truly unique moment. Andrew was co-campaigning with Catherine Garcia. Yes, campaigning alongside his competition. And to a large crowd chanting his name, he said this. If you support me, you should rank Catherine number two on your ballot. Yes, you heard that right. He asked his supporters to rank Garcia second on their ballots. New York City was using ranked choice ballots. And that moment shows clearly how the format of an election can reduce partisanship and encourage cooperation. It's such a clear example of how process can dictate behavior. I invited Andrew Yang on the show to talk about it. Andrew, welcome to Deep Dive. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me, Laura. You had a front seat to the inner workings of government from the perspective that really nobody else has. Talk to us about what you witnessed firsthand in your campaigns and in your exposure to the legislative process and to policymaking. I'd love to. Running for president, unfortunately, firmed up my conviction that we are heading for more dysfunction, not less, that polarization is going to make meaningful solutions next to impossible. Well, let's talk about the incentive structure and the legislative process. You highlight the fact that there is a staggering disconnect between congressional approval ratings, which hover at around 28 percent, meaning that only about a quarter of people approve of the job Congress is doing. Yet the reelection rate of incumbents is around 94 percent. 
So how do you explain the fact that most people in terms of mainstream Americans are unhappy with the status quo, but we keep electing the same people to disappoint us over and over again? Yeah, that disconnect is something that we need to draw more attention to because a lot of folks understand that people do tend to pay attention to their incentives. And if you have a 92 or 94% chance of being reelected doing a certain thing, you're probably going to do it. So what I try to explain to people is that 83% of the districts in our country are either safely Democratic or safely Republican. And there are a lot of reasons some of them have been drawn that way. But the game plan, if you're a lawmaker, is not to deliver for 51% of the public. It's to placate the 10 to 20% most extremely partisan voters in your district, because that's who's going to decide whether you get to keep your job or not. So if you were to step forward and, let's say, propose a compromise and then the other party gets on board, you're probably going to pay a political price for that and not be rewarded for that, which is one reason why you see politicians just blame the other side. And this ties into the fact that right now you have essentially complete job security as long as you tow the party line. In your book, you uh, do a, a splendid job of depressing us all by talking about, first, the unlikeliness that somebody can unseat an incumbent. You mentioned that 83% of congressional districts are now either safely Republican or safely Democratic. But in the unlikely event that somebody does defeat an incumbent, you talk in your book about what that person encounters when Mr. Smith goes to Washington. Talk about the incentive structure at the legislative level, and in this case, we'll talk about Congress, What are the features of this massively dysfunctional legislative system? Yeah, I'm friendly with a bunch of members of Congress, and some of them have leveled with me that it's a fairly strict seniority system where the people that have been there for decades run the place. And then if you're the freshman, you're like the lowest person on the totem pole, and you're told to stretch out your time horizon and do a lot of dialing for dollars because that's the way you gain stature in this system. Right. You put your head down, you follow party leadership, they give you money, you are able to raise a little more money, you elevate your profile, and you inch your way up toward leadership in the hopes that you're going to be there for 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, and you'll be in a position of power at some point. Now, a real fear in Congress and in the Senate is getting primaried. And this has happened before. And I'm referring to the various members of both parties that have really faced challenges at the primary level that have threatened their political future precisely because they sought to compromise. The most famous of them being Eric Cantor in 2014, first House Majority Leader to lose a primary. He supported bipartisan immigration package and he supported the Dreamers. He tried to move the issue forward and he got primaried, lost to a Tea Party challenger, and now we can't touch immigration. What has been your experience, either with people you know in Congress or as somebody who's run for high political office? Is that a real palpable threat that legislators feel every day? Well, again, you have almost complete job security unless you get primaried. And the energy is likely to come from the extreme in your party's flank. So if you're a Republican, you're afraid of having what was a Tea Partier, but now is sort of a very right wing let's call it a QAnon type or someone who talks about how the election was stolen, that sort of candidate is going to be able to draw more energy 
within your party than if someone who comes in and is talking reasonably and says, hey, I'm going to be a fairly moderate voice. So that is what you have to watch out for. (laughs) If you're a legislator, you have to watch out for someone who's going to come at you from the extreme. On the Democratic side, the dynamic is that you call them generally progressives, where it's like a progressive challenger will come. And that's where the energy will come from within the party. So that's the concern. And so it's something that legislators are trying to prevent from happening by not having a vote on their record that could be used as a weapon against them. And again, these primaries are relatively low turnout, certainly relative to the absolute number of people. So we're talking about a small number of people who turn out in a primary. If it's an off-cycle primary, then it's even a smaller number of people. So those people are now determining the fate of the entire district just by virtue of the mechanics and the structure of the party system. Yeah, the, it was United America talks about how 10% of voters effectively determine 83% of our representatives. And it's not a representative 10%. <laughs> you know, it's not like a cross-section of, of voters. I mean, one of the things I joke about is I say, some of the people over there in primary land are really weird. <laughs> you have some like very, very extreme points of view. Yeah, on both sides, for sure. Let's talk about solutions. You have lots of ideas on how to make the system better. What do you think we need? If you look at these messed up incentives for legislators, the best way to fix it would be to open it up and make it so that you have to cater to 51% of the people you represent as opposed to the most extreme 10 to 20%. And one of the things I suggest is people listen to their incentives. And if we were to make their incentives more broad in general, you would see our legislators become more reasonable and rational and prone to compromise overnight. You know, like right now they're being rewarded for being extreme. We have to reward them for getting things done and being even handed. So the process change we're looking for is open primaries, ideally coupled with ranked choice voting, so that if you're running, you have to try and get 51% approval more or less And that would diminish the extremes as opposed to heighten them. Right. So open primaries, of course, gives access to the primaries to every voter. So you eliminate this issue of this minority that's not representative necessarily of the voting base determining who wins the election. Yeah, you have to allow everyone to be able to vote. Right now, a closed party primary excludes uh, people on the other side or independents. And I know this from New York where... 900,000 people voted in the Democratic primary, which effectively decided uh, who the next mayor is going to be. And the city has a population of maybe 9 million. So you're talking about 10%. Of, and, that was, and that was actually a 30% increase oh. in turnout, right? <laughs> yeah, that, Before that was it was even off. lower. So it, it just goes to show that uh, right now, closed party primaries are really effectively disenfranchising a lot of people. And you talked, Andrew, about ranked choice voting as an important element also of reform. So ideally, we'd have open primaries where all candidates, all voters are able to vote for any candidate, but also ranked choice voting so that votes are not necessarily thrown away if somebody's chosen candidate doesn't win. Well, take it from a guy who lost a ranked choice voting election. Ranked choice voting is awesome. Uh, Genuinely, I love it still. (laughs) And so 
It does so many powerful things. First, it gets rid of the spoiler effect, because right now, if you come in as a third party candidate or you have a different point of view, everyone will say, oh, you're just going to mess it up and steal votes from this other person. It makes it also so that if you had an open primary, you could have two Democrats and one Republican run or two Republicans and one Democrat. And there's no, again, spoiler effect so that there isn't an issue with it. It discourages negative campaigning because if I trash you, then we both look kind of bad and then the third person probably benefits. It makes it so that I should make common cause with different candidates, even if they represent relatively small groups of voters, because I'm trying to build a coalition. If there is a minority issue that some people find important, you could gain a lot of traction for it with a candidate who eventually is able to win. It expresses voter preferences more genuinely. There are so many pluses to rank choice voting, and it's also depolarizing because it discourages people from going to the extremes since it's going to turn off a body of voters and they're not going to be able to get to their 51%. Right, because you, you don't know who the person's number two choice is. And so you can't run an ad trashing somebody if you don't know if a voter is likely to choose that person as his or her number one or number two or anywhere in their top selection. So you have to speak to voters in a way that's constructive instead of a way that's destructive. Yeah, You did this in real time in New York. You teamed up with Catherine Garcia during the campaign. Tell us about that decision and what was your strategic thought process and how would that have been different had ranked choice voting not been in place in New York? Catherine Garcia was the candidate I liked the most after myself. And so I was asked a number of times, who would your second choice be? And I said Catherine Garcia just because it was the truth. And then down the stretch of the campaign, we decided to campaign jointly together. And I was very open saying, if you have me first on your ballot, you should put Catherine Garcia second to try and elevate her. And I just thought that was the right thing to do. But I also thought it would send a powerful message as to the kind of leadership New York City should be looking for, which is people that work with other people and bring different groups together. Would that have been feasible in a traditional election? Probably not, because there's no way you can say rank this other person second. (laughs) So it's very difficult to stand on stage with someone and promote them if it's purely zero sum. Now, some people, including, by the way, Eric Adams, the eventual primary winner, made the argument that ranked choice voting hurts minorities and detracts from minority empowerment, the argument being that voting will be perceived as too complicated and there won't be turnout. What was your experience in New York City? I'm happy to say ranked choice voting is really, really easy. 95% of New Yorkers found it very easy. You can't just vote for one person and walk out, so it's really kind of no change. And 77% of New Yorkers want to do it again, which is as close to unanimity as I think you can get in a place like New York. <laughs> and nearly nine in 10 voters ranked multiple candidates. So they actually used the ballot in the way that it was intended. Yeah, it's pretty simple stuff. And ranked choice voting has been demonstrated to actually be beneficial to minority candidates or candidates from underrepresented groups, because in a traditional race, you often go to a runoff, as has happened in New York. And then if you have a runoff and it's just one-on-one, then the candidate from the minority group is more likely to lose than if you have a ranked choice voting system. So the concerns really were not borne out at all in New York City, and it was actually quite the opposite. So this is my mission. And I believe this is the answer, the answer that so many Americans have been looking for and waiting for, because we can see the polarization getting worse and worse. We can see the dysfunction getting worse and worse. And so if you give someone a real solution, a real path, people are going to embrace it and put their backs into it, I believe. 
And in fact, this is one of the six pillars of your new political party, Forward. Tell us about your new party and how you plan to succeed. And what's funny is you and I just defined the goal, the goal of open primaries and ranked choice voting. And so in many ways, the Forward Party is the movement to accomplish that goal. And there is this circularity in American life right now. But I want to go back to first principles because I think it's interesting. If you look at the Constitution, there's not a word about political parties. The founders actually were quite anti-partisan. John Adams described the nightmare scenario of having two great parties that just clashed and clashed, (laughs) which we're experiencing. And so this duopoly that we have is something that more and more Americans have started to question, whether you look up and say, is this really the best design? And so a record 62% of Americans now want an alternative to the two parties. And anyone who's a business person listening to this are like, oh, there's a market and there are two companies and 62% of people want an alternative. You should start one right away. But the major impediment is these closed party primaries and these structures that have been put in place. So the first mission of any movement in this direction has to be the mechanisms themselves or open primaries and ranked choice voting. So that's where the forward party starts is as a popular inclusive movement that registered Democrats and Republicans can join to implement open primaries and ranked choice voting so we can have a more genuinely dynamic and representative political system. And we know from vast experience as citizens that political parties and incumbents are not eager to vote themselves out of office or to legislate themselves out of office. So people, the populace, the voters will have to do this on their own. In fact, ranked choice voting doesn't require legislative action in every state. In 24 states, it can be passed by the voters via ballot initiative. So that means that motivated citizens could adopt ranked choice voting in a number of states, ranging from Arizona, Arkansas, California, Missouri, Nevada, Massachusetts, Michigan, Oklahoma, Washington, Wyoming. So lots and lots of possibilities. Yes. So that's mission one of the forward party. The other principles are things that I think a lot of people here would agree with. But one I want to emphasize is grace and tolerance, which is we're not out to villainize or demonize our fellow Americans. We don't see other Americans as the enemy. Uh, what we see as the enemy is a system that's trying to turn us against each other. <laughs> you know, like that. That's actually the real problem. So The Forward Party hopefully will become a positive, unifying, centrist movement of people that just want things to work better and be more genuinely representative. Well, movements start with visionaries, and you certainly are that, Andrew. We are so excited to have you join the democracy reform movement. We are grateful for you joining us today and grateful for everything you're doing to move the country forward. Grateful for your leadership, Laura. Really pumped to be here. And I I know that I'm joining an incredible group of people. I just want to play my role. And that's one of the things I enjoy about this community is that it really is going to be a team effort. Well, it's going to be fantastic and we'll look forward to following it. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. We covered a lot of ground today. We heard from Professor Larry Diamond and Andrew Yang on the state of our democracy and some of the root causes of polarization. And most importantly, we talked about what we can do about it. We're all frustrated with the state of our toxic politics. In light of all we're seeing, it's tempting to throw up our hands and admit defeat. Even once passionate advocates who put their nose to the grindstone on critical issues can become disenchanted and jaded. We've all been there. Change is hard, and it feels like it's becoming harder as the days and years go by. What gives me hope 
And what I hope you take away from this conversation is that there are still people out there trying to change the system for the better, to make our democracy more responsive to all the people it serves and not just the extreme portions of the electorate, to make our elected officials truly compete for every vote. And these advocates are well positioned to make a difference. Innovation is ingrained in the fabric of American democracy. It wasn't very long ago that women did not have the right to vote. Before 1912, we couldn't even elect our own U.S. senators. But our system evolved to reflect our values and our wishes. That's the beautiful part of democracy, that we, the people, through our own self-governance, can reimagine and renew our system when the gears start to break down. Larry and Andrew wrote very different books, but they both end with the same sentiment. Andrew says, no one else is coming. There is no cavalry. It's only us. And in Larry's words, freedom's last line of defense still remains, we the people. This has been Deep Dive, the production of Arnold Ventures, where we are dedicated to tackling some of the most pressing problems in the United States. I'm Laura Arnold. Thanks for listening.